The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 17. The word of God speaks to us. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that it is God's temple and the God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. This is God's word to us. Amen. Thanks, Holly. Good morning, guys. How you doing? Good. Hey, thanks for being here today. If we haven't yet met yet, my name is Josh Curry, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. If you got a Bible, you can go ahead and find our text. We're going to be in that text for the entirety of today's sermon. And I want to take a second and pray for you as we were worshiping and singing the truth that uh, we want our lives to be built on the foundation of Jesus, the one foundation that can endure the storms of life. I was just thinking about the things that we all brought into the room, the places of affliction and suffering and disappointment and heartache and pain. Um, This is a really painful week for a a dear friend of mine that probably is going to die in the next two weeks. And uh, in the midst of trying to navigate this world, man, there are so many storms, so many storms. And, and what we believe through the gospel of Jesus is that those storms don't contradict the goodness of God or the love of God, but in those storms, he meets us. And we have promises through the finished work of Jesus. So whatever you're carrying today, be it a marital storm, a storm with your kids, a storm with your body, a storm with your job, Let's just take a second and go to God and receive his presence and his goodness and his promise that he's at work, that he's at work and that nothing can separate you from his love because of the finished work of Jesus. So, hey, Lord, we we don't want to pay lip service to building our lives on the foundation of Jesus. We want that to be the lived reality day to day. Lord, we want to be deepened in the midst of affliction. We want to have hearts that are tethered to the empty tomb. God, we don't want to live lives of anxiety, terrified of death, or afraid of lack. We want to live lives of humble confidence in the midst of a world that's broken, knowing that the that the empty tomb is your pledge and promise that all things are gonna be made new. So Lord, help us today as we open your word. Fill us with joy today. 
God, thank you that joy is different than happiness. Happiness is deeply circumstantial, but joy is rooted in the living God and what he's done and his grace, and that's not circumstantial. So meet us today and help us. And Lord, even as parts of this text are gonna be really prophetic and they're gonna confront assumptions and beliefs that we hold in the room, I just pray for grace to listen and to give your word a hearing and that your spirit would apply it to us. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Hey, uh, a couple of things before we dive into this text. First off, if you're not a follower of Jesus or if you've been away from Christ and uh, you're coming back today trying to discern whether or not you want to re-engage the church, I'm really glad that you're here. Really thankful that you're here. It's our, it's our hope and our prayer that this would be a church that welcomes you, that creates a space for you to be present with God and present with the claims of Jesus, and that the things that we would talk about and emphasize as a church would be the heartbeat of Christianity, what it really means to be a disciple, what it means to follow Christ. And so if that's you today, thanks for being here. Um, today might feel a bit like some insider baseball because our, today, our text today is gonna address the intricacies of Christian leadership. But even for those of us in the room that are not Christians, I think what you're gonna find today is the power of Jesus displayed and the centrality of the gospel or the good news of Jesus on display. So take your Bible. Here we go. We're going to dive in. Uh, the last 10 years in the American church has been incredibly tumultuous for Christian leadership. It's been a decade of scandal. It's been a decade of prominent pastors walking away from the faith. It's been a decade of lead pastors and elder communities being divided. It's been a decade marked with carnage, and it's been a decade in which I've seen some of my dear friends and churches that I love blow up. And I think in the midst of all of the turmoil and all the carnage of the American church, what we find is that leaders are confused about Christian leadership. Leaders are confused. Many leaders in our cultural moment are going passive out of fear that if they confront disobedience to Jesus. If they preach unpopular doctrines, they'll be canceled. And the result for many is that out of fear of the mob, they've not exercised their sacred responsibility as shepherds in the church of Jesus. Some have grown quiet where the scriptures are loud out of fear. Other Christian leaders in our cultural moment have indeed pursued loving correction faithful teaching, even of unpopular doctrines, and they have indeed been canceled. And for those that have exercised their calling and ministry in faithfulness, that have not received the applause of man, they will receive the honor of their heavenly father. Others in our cultural moment have indeed fallen into domineering leadership, acting as if the church belongs to them. They have abused their authority. And though I believe this is a minority of pastors, not the norm, the minority of pastors that have abused their sacred trust with the local church have given bullets to the mob to shoot at all pastors. And all pastors, no matter what their proclivities and temptations are, all pastors in our cultural moment have to navigate leadership in a culture that values platform and performance above formation and faithfulness. 
And in the midst of all of those confusions that leaders bring into the vocation of being pastors, members in local churches are also really confused about leadership. It seems that the two most prevalent hobbies among Christians of our day include elevating leaders to heights close to worship, creating cults of personality, following their favorite Christian teachers and pastors as if they were influencers, and then, in turn, delighting in their demise, enjoying their fall, and bragging as if they can game tape exactly why it happened. And in the midst of this cultural moment, our text comes to us today in its ancient context. The Apostle Paul is addressing the leadership confusion in Corinth. He's addressing what's wrong there, their confusion about leadership and their confusion about membership. But as Paul addresses the two big problems among leaders in, in the church at Corinth, he also speaks prophetically to our day. And I believe that we desperately need this text today. We need this text to help us have resilience as leaders, humility as leaders, faithfulness as leaders that we might finish the race. And we need this text as members of the local church to navigate what Christian leadership is and what it is not. So what I wanna do today is simply give you two big ideas from the text. And then I wanna follow up the two big ideas with supporting data from God's word. I want us to look at two big things. The first thing that Paul wants to point out is that the Corinthians must not confuse the church's leaders with the church's God. There's a confusion in Corinth where the particular members of the church are elevating leaders to a place of prominence as if the leaders were their masters instead of servants of God. Paul points this out in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4. We covered this last week. He writes, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? The immaturity among the Corinthians in their relationship with leaders highlights the fact that they don't understand the contrast between the work of Christian leaders and the work of God. They've confused what leaders do and what God does. So I want to give you a few things to think about. I want to show you some contrasts that Paul paints in our text. First of all, leaders in the church are called to serve God and serve God's people. They are servants, not masters. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul writes, what is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. The Corinthians were called to believe through Paul and his preaching and through Apollos and his teaching. They were not called to believe in Paul or in Apollos. Both Paul and Apollos were pointing beyond themselves as they preached the gospel to the substance of the person and work of Jesus as the source of the Corinthians' belief. The leaders of the church are called to be servants, not masters, and Paul is using his authority to serve God and serve God's people. And I just want to say this is the most basic dynamic of Christian leadership, but the most essential, servants in the local church are called to be shepherds under God and for the good and for the benefit of God's people. And this is found in the very essence of Jesus. Jesus said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So the posture of Christian leaders, even in times of confrontation, even in preaching difficult texts, even in doing church discipline, is always rooted and grounded in the ultimate reality that leaders serve, leaders don't own anything. They don't own the people, they don't own the word, they don't own the money, they don't own the building. God owns it all. And what we find is that God owning the leaders and the members of the church is explicit in verse nine. Look what Paul says. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Paul and Apollos are fellow workers who both belong to God. And the church is God's farm or God's field and God's building, not Paul or Apollos's. And this is really good news that God is the one that purchased people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. God's the one that owns everything, including the leaders in the church and the members of the local church. Moving from there, Paul wants to contrast the leaders that serve in diversity and unity and God who distributes gifts and assignments. Leaders are called to serve in diversity and unity. First of all, there's diversity. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. I planted... Apollos watered. Paul was the founding apostolic leader of the church at Corinth. He laid the gospel foundation. And after Paul left, Apollos showed up and continued the work of gospel ministry by watering the seeds that, would, that were planted. Verse 7, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but God who gives the growth. Here's what we find. Paul and Apollos were profoundly different leaders. They had different gifts they had different responsibilities, they had different strengths, and they had different weaknesses. And in the midst of the diversity of the leaders that the Corinthians had experienced, the Corinthians had wrongly chosen favorites and elevated some leaders over others. But, the, but Paul and Apollos don't just serve in diversity, they also serve in unity. Look at verse eight. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. Here's what Paul is saying. Even though the various leaders of the Corinthian church have different strengths and capacities and assignments and roles and gifts and weaknesses, they're unified in preaching the good news of Jesus because there's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And what we find is that Paul is fanatical about pointing to God as the one that distributes and assigns the various capacities, gifts, strengthnesses, strengths, weaknesses, and roles in the church. Look at verse five again. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. In verse 10, Paul says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. That there's a diversity of gifts and capacities in the church, and there's a unity of mission among the leaders of the church, and the source of all of the diversity and all the unity is God himself. Which means it's absurd and ridiculous to team up to let preferences drive our relationship with various Christian leaders. Our calling is to receive the various gifts and assignments from God, and to glorify God and honor God as the one that sovereignly distributes and that assigns responsibilities. This is one of the things I love most about our church. I love the diversity of our leadership community. 
I love sitting under the leadership of Brian Elliott, who sees the world so differently than me, who has different strengths. Where I'm weak, he's strong. I love getting to do ministry with brothers like Chad Kinser and Garrett and Dylan and Corey and the various deacons and elders of our church. And in the midst of all the diversity, here's what we find, that God's glory is displayed in the unity of what we're trying to do, which is preach Jesus and advance the mission of God. In addition, Paul wants to point out that leaders labor, but God gives the growth. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to say that he worked harder in the city of Corinth than any other leader. I love that. That hard work is not opposed to grace. Hard work flows from grace. And Christian leaders are, hard, are called to work hard. They're not called to be men of leisure. They're not called to be soft-handed guys that don't get dirty. They're called to be men that put on their work boots and work really hard for the advancement of God's mission. But Paul is really clear that the source of the growth, the reason that things are fruitful is not because Apollos or Paul are working hard. It's God that gives the growth. Look at verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. They're, they're nothing in the grand scheme of things. Paul's not a big deal. Apollos is not a big deal. Josh Curry's not a big deal. Chad Kinser's not a big deal. Charlie Hall's not a big deal, believe it or not. <laughs> all the glory and all the credit goes to God because there's not a single Christian leader in a single Christian church that has the ability to cause anything of eternal significance to grow unless the living God moves. God gets all the credit. So what does all this mean? Well, let me make a couple of points of application. Leaders ultimately belong to God, not to the members. Now that doesn't mean that leaders are not accountable to the members. They indeed are accountable to the members. But the relationship between members and leaders of the church is not an unmediated relationship. It's a relationship where the leaders and the members of the church relate to one another in and through the finished work of Jesus and according to the word of God. And what we find is that not only do leaders belong to God, not to the members, but the church belongs to God, not to the leaders. This doesn't mean that the leaders don't have real authority delegated from God. They do. Paul's going to model that as he teaches and corrects in all patience. So here's what we find. This is so important. Unhealthy elevation of leaders, cults of personality, comparison, factions, and divisions are all out of step with reality. Domineering leadership that beats up or eats God's sheep is not reconcilable with the heart of Christian leadership. As well, cowardly leadership that protects itself, that's afraid of controversy, that doesn't preach God's word, that doesn't practice church discipline, that won't have hard conversations out of fear of getting counseled or called abusive, that's not Christian leadership. Christian leadership is about being a faithful servant that receives from God everything needed and that exercises its calling for the glory of God and for the good of God's people. The church is God-centered, not leader-centered, and she needs God-centered leaders. And this leads to the second thing, and here's where it gets really dicey. What does a God-centered leader really look like? And 
Paul is going to point out that the Corinthians mustn't confuse the eternal with the passing away. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time today. We're not to confuse the eternal with the passing away. Let me give you a few things to to think about and look at in our text. First of all, the church has one foundation, Jesus Christ crucified and raised again. Look at 1 Corinthians 3 verse 10. According to the the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, crucified and raised from the dead, is the only foundation of the church. And any church that doesn't have the foundation of Jesus Christ, crucified and raised from the dead, is not a church, it's something else entirely. The church is built on the eternal wisdom of God, the gospel. This means that the church's identity and essence are built on Jesus. She is chosen, redeemed, sanctified, justified, glorified, adopted, filled, and sent into the world all to the finished work of Jesus. Jesus is the bedrock of what the church is. She exists through Jesus and for Jesus, and the church is the beginning through Jesus of the new creation. And all of this is through the sovereign plan of the Father, through the work of the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Full stop, the church's foundation is Jesus. It's Jesus. And Paul's gonna say next that what is then built on the foundation is to be like the foundation. Is to be like the foundation. Look at verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Okay, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, this is not a mysterious allegory. Our job is not to try to figure out what what does gold symbolize and what's the difference between gold and silver. What Paul is saying is that some things are like the foundation because they flow out of the eternal wisdom of God in the gospel. They last forever. Some things are not like the foundation. They pass away because they embodied man-centered wisdom that's temporary and fleeting. And Paul is warning that the church is to believe and practice that which is in accordance with the foundation. That the church is to build on the foundation of Jesus, rhythms and habits and teaching and liturgy and mission and ministries and discipleship that's built on the foundation of God's wisdom in Jesus that looks like that foundation, that smells like that foundation and that adorns that foundation. Paul's already mentioned that the wisdom of the world is passing away. Let me remind you, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So the problem in Corinth, which is with leaders in particular and members in general, 
is that they're trying to build on the foundation of Jesus, God's eternal, permanent wisdom, all kinds of things that are importing human wisdom that's fleeting and passing away. In particular, for the church at Corinth, they were trying to build on the foundation of Jesus with Greek Sophia, with Greek wisdom. And the problem is that Greek Sophia is like wood and hay and straw that won't last. The fire burns it up and it won't exist anymore. They're trying to bolt things onto the foundation of Jesus that are unlike the foundation of Jesus. Now I want to pause here for a second because as we get into application, I want you to see that this is the perennial danger in the church. This is not just a Corinthian problem. And though our problem may not be Greek wisdom, we as Christians in our day and age and all Christians in every day and age have been tempted to import the wisdom of the world and to try to build on the foundation of Jesus with things that are fleeting, temporary, and doomed to pass away. Why would we do that? Well, listen, the wisdom of the world is often attractive. It's easier. And sometimes it works really well to build a crowd. So I want to take a couple of minutes, and at the risk of offending every person in the room, I I want to pull this out of Greek Sophia, and I want to talk about the wood, hay, and the straw that Christian leaders and Christian members are tempted to build with. We can build with consumerism. Because the wisdom of the world says church is a business. That members are customers. That felt needs should always be obeyed and catered to. The wisdom of the world says that Jesus is just another product that exists to give you what you need to be happy. He's a means to an end, not an end. And and listen, you can build a crowd with that message. You can fill seats with that message. But the wisdom of God says something really different. The wisdom of God says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Consumerism is incompatible with the foundation of Jesus because Christians are not consumers. The gospel is not a product and the church is not a business. We are disciples who are called to die and follow Jesus in that dying. We can build with nationalism. We've seen this throughout many election cycles in the Western church. The wisdom of the world says, your country can be the kingdom, capital K. Your party or your favorite elected official can be your Messiah. We've had so many Messiahs elected to office. The wisdom of the world says your nation can be your ultimate hope for security and home. Now, make no mistake, Christians can and should be the very best citizens of their nation. We should care. We should be engaged. But the wisdom of God says something really different than nationalism. The wisdom of God says that we are strangers and exiles in the earth and that we are waiting for our true country that we now see only by faith. And our allegiance and our obedience is never given blindly to an elected official. Our allegiance and obedience is given to a king who will evaluate and judge all elected officials according to his law and his standards. 
We can build with identity politics. And you can build a big church that way. The wisdom of the world says that it's good to stoke the fire of enmity, division, and unforgiveness. We live in a world that may talk about reconciliation, but it doesn't really want repentance. It doesn't really want forgiveness, and it doesn't really want love. It wants us to find our primary identity in whatever people group we identify as, and it wants us to be at odds with all other people groups, and it wants us to bear our grievances to the end and not allow, even after repentance, the hope of reconciliation. But listen to the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Identity politics has no place in the church of Jesus because diverse groups, diverse backgrounds are made one by the blood of Jesus and our calling is to love each other. We can build with a post-Christian sexual ethic. Many of our friends that have pastored churches are trying to do this right now. The wisdom of the world says consent is all that matters. It says follow every urge and every desire. It says build your identity on your urges and desires. Follow your lust into freedom. But the wisdom of God, which speaks to all people, naming and owning the fact that all Christians are indeed sexually broken and need to repent, it says this, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We can build on pop psychology. The therapeutic is the very air that we breathe as Americans. And the wisdom of the world says that your greatest problem is not thinking more highly of yourself. It says that your problem is that you aren't man-centered enough. But the wisdom of God says that our greatest problem is not our inability to self-actualize, but our greatest problem is that we're alienated from God and one another because of our sin. That we're not defined primarily as victims with excuses, but we're part of the problem as sinners with responsibility to come to God, to believe, to repent, and to be healed. And the list goes on and on. In every culture, in every age, the wood, hay, and the straw might look a little different, but here's what Paul is saying. It all gets burned up. It doesn't last. The foundation of Jesus is the eternal wisdom of God and to build on that foundation with anything other than that which reflects, moves from, and points to the finished work of Jesus is an effort in futility. And no matter how attractive it is, no matter how much it works in the short term, it has a shelf life that's like this. We don't want to build on the foundation of Jesus with fads or trends we want to build on the foundation of Jesus with that, with that which is truly going to outlast us. What we build on the foundation will be tested and revealed. Will be tested and revealed. Let me read to you one more time what Paul says. Now, if anyone builds 
on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, the day of the Lord. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. This text has been used as the only text in the New Testament to try to justify the doctrine of purgatory. It has nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that. What Paul is saying is that everything that we build on the foundation of Jesus will be on the great day, the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus. It will be exposed to the burning holiness of God. And the only things that are going to remain on the great day are the things that are like the foundation. Everything else will go away. And I want to say that, listen, every single church is a mixture. Every church is, because we're a mixture. And until the day of the Lord, every church, no matter how healthy that church is, will have both gold and silver and precious stones, and every church has wood, hay, and straw. We all do. We all do. This church has wood, hay, and straw, as well as precious stones in it. And all churches on this side of the great day will. But Paul is inviting us through the wisdom of God to evaluate what we're doing currently as Christian leaders and as Christian members in light of looking back to the death and resurrection of Jesus and ahead to the great day and to ask questions that are a little deeper about what we're trying to build with. Does this look like Jesus? Does this reflect Jesus? Does this smell like Jesus? And Paul is inviting all Christians, this is so important, hear me say this, he's inviting all Christians, not just leaders, but every member of the church, to prayerfully and humbly and in repentance work for the church's ongoing reform. Together, we're to seek God to be less of a mixture of the world's wisdom and the wisdom of God and to be a little bit more rooted and grounded on the foundation of Jesus and building with things that look like Jesus. And Paul closes with a prophetic warning. And this prophetic warning is one that kind of preaches itself. Just reading it will be enough to get massive pushback and criticism. We must be careful that we don't confuse the work of reform with the work of deconstruction. The church on this side of glory will always be in need of reform. She'll always be a mix of things that are beautiful and eternal and things that are temporary and fleeting. She'll always need more repentance. She'll always need more sanctification. She'll always need the presence of the living God to help us to see more clearly and believe more rightly and to live more in step with the gospel. We'll always need that. But Paul doesn't want us to mistake the work of reform with the work of destroying. Because God loves the church with a ferocious love. He loves the church with a holy love. He loves the church with a covenantal love. And according to the pages of God's sacred scripture, there is no such thing as a churchless Christianity. It doesn't exist. And Paul closes this section with these words, a prophetic warning. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. 
Do you not know that you are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells within you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. It's amazing that you can build wrongly. You can build wrongly and mistakenly and on the great day, what Paul is saying is that the fire will reveal your work and you'll still be saved. You'll smell like smoke, but it'll be okay. (laughs) But to step out and to attempt to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, to war against the church of Jesus Christ, is to expose the reality that you don't know and love Jesus Christ. The expectation is that if you destroy the church of Jesus, you will be destroyed. Even if you pretend that your motives are noble. Let's pray. Join with me for just a moment in uh, taking a second to pray for the leaders of this church. Nobody needs the gospel more than the leaders of this church. Nobody needs conviction and repentance more than the leaders of this church. Pray that God would raise up more leaders for his church. He's the one that distributes gifts and assigns responsibilities. Pray that he would raise up laborers for the harvest. And though this text is primarily focused on leadership and membership in the church, it's worth asking the question for our personal lives, where are we trying to build on the foundation of Jesus with things that are temporary, fleeting, and will be burned up? So Father, will you help us um, to be responsive and tender? God, I pray for the leaders in this church and the leaders in the church, that you would deliver us from the schemes of the enemy, that you would lead us into greater faithfulness, that you would help us to love you, follow you, that you would help us to be servants that glorify you and care for your people. Help us to neither be cowards nor domineering. I pray for members of this church, Lord, that you would help them to be vigilant and watchful and prayerful. And where the wisdom of the world seems really attractive and even effective at building and getting people off of our backs, pray that you would help us to have the discernment and the courage to not bolt onto the foundation of Jesus things that can't last. So help us today as we come to this meal, feed us and nurture us. Give us everything that we need today for life and godliness, we pray. Amen.